Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and then later the co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, oftentimes we remember him as the great civil rights leader who, who marched and this eloquent, passionate speaker, but he was also a pastor. And as a pastor, he saw society not as it should be. He saw the injustice in society, how God created a nation, a society, a people to treat one another with justice. And he saw a society that didn't do that, and he said, that's evil. And so for Dr. King, his issue at its core was a theological issue. It wasn't simply just, hey, this is wrong. It was a theological issue. Because he understood it that he was so offended that the actions of our government and the actions of our society marginalized those simply on the basis of race. And he said, this is injustice. This is evil. And he understood that to fail to treat all people in God's image is an affront and an offense to God himself. And that this is evil. It was a theological problem. The theological problem had to do with God's justice. The prophet Amos, he said this, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Did you hear that? If you really want to know God, and if you say you know God then you must maintain justice. Don't simply talk about how much you love God, but you must act justly. For when justice is present, God is present. The sign of justice is a sign of God's presence. Justice properly dispensed is a sign of the, of the presence of God. Amos would go on to say that, hey, we should not have to wring justice out of the hands of the oppressors. He would say that justice should just roll like a mighty river out of the people of God because we practice justice. We treat people as image bearers of God. God himself is just, and a properly ordered society would be reflecting the justice of God. And so th this was part of his message. This truth, it eventually drove Dr. King to Montgomery, Alabama, where he pastored that church there, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and people took notice. And they said, wow, this young man can preach. And so people approached him and they said, hey, Dr. King, would you be willing to be the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association? And he did, and you know the rest of the story. And, or if you don't, then you should read it, because it really is a great story of, of a man who saw the injustice in society and who said, I, I want to enact change, but I want to do it in a way that would honor God. And so he led these peaceful protests, and he spoke so eloquently. Um, it's, it is a great story, a man who saw justice as, at its fundamental core, a theological problem, where he said, this is not right in the sight of God. The fact that America needed Dr. King and a civil rights movement, which we'll celebrate tomorrow, was a sad commentary on the state of our nation. And it was a sad commentary on the state of our churches, that on a Sunday morning, our church can be so segregated. 
And so part of what made this such a sad commentary is because the church, the nation, should have known better. It should have known better because we had the example from the book of Acts. We had Acts chapter 15. Go ahead and turn there with me this morning. Acts chapter 15. In this section that we'll look at, we'll see how one group of people will look down upon another group of people simply because of their culture, because of their background, because of where they're from, because of their practices, what they do. This uh, was a sad time in the state of the church, but the church rose to the challenge. I'm going to start by reading Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. It's really the end of the scene, really. I'm just going to jump right to the end. But Acts 15, 22 to 35, we get to see uh, really the great conclusion that this Jerusalem council, this board meeting uh, comes to. Acts 15, 22 to 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements." That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these. You know, sometimes the question is asked, if those people really love Jesus, how could they really do that? I wonder if they really love Jesus, because if they really love Jesus, I'm not so sure they would look that way. You know, when I started training uh, for ministry, I did an internship at a church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and part of my responsibility there, I spent a, a great deal of time working with addicts. This church, it had a large recovery program for people who struggled with various addictions. And so, and it was a rehabilitation discipleship program where they did all kinds of things for these men. They they got them a place to stay. They worked with them on a budget. They made them go to different discipleship groups. They got them a job, all these different things. And, but if you were just to see these guys, 
you might question, do they really believe if you just looked at them from a distance? Because you would see these guys, and some of them would still be, they would be smoking. One guy, he was a uh, recovering homeless man, and he used to hide salami under his pillow. He was convinced that somebody, if he put it in the fridge, somebody would take it, and he wanted to know that he had food. And so eventually they figured it out because the room started smelling really bad, and they were wondering, where, what is smelling so bad in here? And they found salami under the guy's pillow. But, you know, I asked the, the guy a little bit about the process, and he told me, he said, you know, Steve, you're just seeing where they are right now. But if you could see the journey that God has taken them on to get them to this point, you'd be amazed at what God has done in their life. So we can't just take everything away from them right away. Because if we took everything away from them right, right away, they might not be able to handle it. But we got to get them off the alcohol. We got to get them off the hard drugs. We got to get them in their right mind so that they can understand who God has made them to be, who God has called them to be, and allow that, uh, that continual um, conforming into the image of, of Christ to take place. But if you were just to go by and see them, see them smoking and, and see some of their choices and lifestyle decisions, you might ask the question, are those guys really believers? Do they really know Jesus? See, when we see all that God has done to get them there, we understand, well, that in and of itself was an amazing work of grace, an incredible journey just to get there. Yeah, they still have a long ways to go, but God has already done amazing things in their life. So the church in Jerusalem, it's struggling with the fact that they're looking at these Gentile believers, this Gentile church, and they're seeing these Gentiles getting saved, and they are wrestling with this question, I'm not so sure that they're believers. They don't really look like Christians. They don't really look the way worshipers of God ought to look. And so they sent, you know, they sent Barnabas up to check on them, and, you know, hey, Barnabas, you got to find out, are these people really saved? And so Barnabas, he goes and he says, yes, they're saved. It's evident because look at the way they're sharing the gospel with people. I mean, they're passionate and just sharing the gospel. Yes, they're saved. And so, and you know the story. Barnabas, he goes and he finds Paul and Paul and Barnabas together. They're training the church, discipling the church. And then the church commissions them off on that first missionary journey. And when that happens, some in Jerusalem, they just weren't satisfied with Barnabas's response. They weren't satisfied with the report that Barnabas had given. What they're saying is, hey, you know, we know Barnabas, and he's a heart guy, you know, he's just all heart. And you know heart guys, I mean, he's not a head guy, and you can't really trust heart guys' decisions sometimes, because that's even what Barnabas, his nickname really means, you know, son of encouragement, that he just goes up there, and you know how Barnabas is, he's just going to love everybody, and so he just, he's loving everybody. He's encouraging everybody. I'm not so sure we can trust his report. You know, that's just Barnabas. We love him, but, you know, we know how he is. We need to check this out for ourselves. And so you have some people who were appointed by their own self-righteousness, and they leave Jerusalem, and they go up to Antioch to check these things out, and they come to the church, and they say, hey, what is Barnabas? What of Paul? What have they been teaching you? 
And so this, this church, they share with them the gospel. Here's, here's what we've been taught. And these people, appointed by their own self-righteousness, they say, yeah, that's, that's just what we thought. That, that's what we thought. You know, Barnabas and Paul, they mean well, but that's not the whole gospel. You've, they've left one big part out that you must understand. Here was the issue for Jewish Christians. They were saying, hey, it's great that you believe in Jesus. That's good. It's, but, hey, you must adopt our traditions. If you want to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And this is what they tell them. If you want to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. Now understand, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Okay, these letters hadn't been compiled. They haven't been circulated. They, this, the church is struggling to figure out, okay, what do worshipers of God now look like? How are we supposed to behave? What are we supposed to do? And the Jewish Christians, they're saying, well, hey, this is how we did it in Old Testament times, right? This is the food that we were supposed to eat, and that's the food we're not supposed to eat. Men, you guys got to get circumcised. Okay? This is the rule book. We've got over 400 rules here, and we've got to keep them. This is what a worshiper of God looks like, and you people don't look like worshipers of God at all. If you want to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And they go through, and they tell them, hey, I mean, just think about it for a moment. Jesus was a Jew. So if you want to become like Jesus, you've got to be a Jew. Jesus he, he kept the law. You need to keep the law. The Jews are God's chosen people. If you want to be chosen, you should become a Jew. This is the scripture that we had. Here are the rules. You need to keep them. And by the way, we've kind of amended them and added to them a little bit just to be clear, sure that we are not violating them. So here's, here's your uh, extended version so you understand the whole bit. You've got to follow all these rules to become a good Jew, and then you can become a good Christian. And on some level, this logic made sense. And some of them, some of the Gentiles, they followed along and they went with it. Others, they just simply drifted away. Paul and Barnabas, they get back and they find out what's going on, and they start preaching against this teaching. And there is a crisis in the early church. I mean, if it wasn't for the power of God, I mean, this crisis would have blown Christianity up. It was that serious. It was a huge, huge, huge controversy. So much so that the church has to call all the Christian leaders together to this Jerusalem council, this gigantic board meeting, to find out, okay, what are we going to do? How what ought church worship look like? How do the people of God now worship God? What should this look like? What should we expect of Gentile believers? And so you have a whole crowd of people there, okay? Peter's there, Paul's there, Barnabas is there, uh, John Mark is there, a whole, whole group of people. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is there. And 
the, the Judaizers, as they would later be called, these Jewish Christians, they stand up first and they say, hey, look what they're eating. These men aren't circumcised. Look at how they're living. Uh, this doesn't look like a worshiper of God. We, we, th- this is not how things ought to be done. You know, we remember the good old days when no person of faith would be behaving like this. We've got to put some standards in place. We need to give them the law. This is the way we've always done things, you know. And so Peter, as he typically does, he steps up first. And he speaks. And he shares. And he says, hey, God doesn't make any distinction between people. He doesn't make any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't make any distinction between background and all this stuff. He says, that's not just. The the laws are so detailed, they are so torturous that even Jews can't keep them. And now you're trying to put them on these Gentiles who are just now hearing this for the first time? You're going to there. I mean, our boys, they were circumcised on the eighth day. You're asking grown men now to be circumcised and somehow that reflects their obedience to God? He says, no, we got to think this through. This is injustice. Because it is by grace that we've been saved, and it is by grace that they've been saved. And if you're trying to do anything to add to that grace, then you are cheapening the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this is Peter's message. See, you're you're trying to convince them that they can earn salvation on some level. That cheapens the grace. And so the church, they agree with Peter and Barnabas and Paul, who would also speak, and they said it would be unjust to heap all of these rules and regulations onto the Gentiles. Do you see how amazing this is? This is really revolutionary. The church saw a worship service that was totally outside of their box. That They saw a Gentile worship service who were doing worship different than the way they've ever experienced worship before. Any way they've worshipped has never looked like that. I mean, you have Gentiles who, they're not getting circumcised. You have Gentiles who, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's eat together afterwards. We'll have a potluck. Why don't you bring some shellfish and some pork? And the Jewish Christians, their mouths are just dropped. This what in the world? You can't do that. You can't worship God like that. What kind of potluck is this anyway? See, they couldn't get over it. And now the church says, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Those rules, those regulations, they no longer apply because we are now under grace. Not that there is no law in grace, not that there is no grace in the law, but we are under a new set of standards. And by the way, these new set of standards, they're more difficult than the old set. The church would soon learn. But the old church was was good with this because they had the maturity to set aside their traditions, to set aside their preferences, and to embrace change, to embrace the changes that this Gentile church was bringing. Because they looked at it and they looked at the ministry and the revelation of Jesus. And they asked the fundamental question, does this infringe on our doctrine? Does this change fundamentally what we believe? And the answer was no. 
It does not impact our doctrine. It does not impact our standards. This is good. You see, a church on the move embraces change. A church on the move embraces change. It has the maturity to look and to say, hey, if this does not impact what we believe the word of God teaches us, if it does not impact doctrine, then everything else is simply tradition and preference, and I can lave all that aside if this will help win people to Jesus, if this will help disciple people and encourage them and equip them to grow in their faith. And so the church says, you know, we've got to let the Gentiles know we support them. We need to let them know that we're on our side because they've just had all these Judaizers go up and tell them how bad they are and how they have to become Jews. So we need to let them know that we reached this decision in unity. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, he drafts a letter. And in that letter, he cites an Old Testament prophet. And he guesses on the prophet, Amos. Amos. And he says, look what Amos prophesied. Amos said, Amos predicted that God would accept Gentiles into his family. That the day was coming when Gentiles would be adopted into the family of God. And at the end of this letter, James, he includes some instructions for what this Gentile church should really care about, the standards that they should really be aware of and care about. And and, you, and we read the letter, we read what was sent, and it says, hey, some of, some of it gets a little weird, really. Don't eat food that's been strangled, stay away from blood, this kind of stuff. Don't, don't eat food offered to idols. And for the best we can tell, that all of these instructions had to do with, the, with a form of commandments related to eating food offered to idols. They're all really coming from the same Idea. See, in those days, there were lots of temples and lots of false gods. And so in those days, you'd go to the marketplace, there'd be a sign on a piece of meat just saying, hey, this piece of meat, this animal, has been sacrificed to Zeus. And so some people, you know, they, they look at that and they say, whoa, there, there must be some special blessing attached to this animal that's been sacrificed to Zeus. We'll, we'll want to buy that. But the Jewish Christians, you know, they're looking at this, and they're saying, this is, this is awful. This is idolatry. This is terrible. you got to stay away from that. Don't have anything to do with that. And so what James is encouraging the, the Gentiles to say, don't eat food that's been involved in any kind of idol ceremony, that's been sacrificed to idols, anything like that. Stay away from all that. Paul would later write, and he would later say that, hey, you and I both know that idols are fake, they're false, they don't mean anything. If you want to eat food sacrificed to idols, you have the liberty to do that. You do have the liberty to do that. But to a new Jewish Christian, eating food sacrificed to idols was highly, highly offensive. It would cause them to be greatly concerned, to be unkind, to act unchristianly to their Gentile brothers and sisters. And so what Paul would go on to say is, hey, do you have the right to eat the food? Yeah, you have the right to eat the food, but you do not have the right to be a stumbling block to your brother and sister in Christ who are, who are still learning their relationship with Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. So the, the question is not 
oftentimes is not, do I have the right? But the question is, do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ more than I love my rights? A church on the move limits her liberty out of love. A church on the move limits her liberty out of love. For instance, if it were just me this morning preaching, I'd probably be in a t-shirt and shorts. Because that's, that's just how I roll. I mean, I'm, I'm much more comfortable in just shorts and a t-shirt. I'm a shorts and a t-shirt kind of guy. When I get home, I'm putting on shorts and a t-shirt. And I appreciate that. <laughs> See, there's nothing sacred about the building. The building is not the church. We are the church. We are the temple of God. We now have the presence of God with us always, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so our whole lives ought to be continual expressions of worship unto God. And so I got to care a whole lot more about being the temple of God and overeating than I do about what I wear. However, out of my love for you, I recognize that if I show up in shorts and a t-shirt, some of you might be looking and saying, you know, that pastor, I don't know that he really values this place enough. And, and, and so you're thinking thoughts that are unkind, that are unchristian. Why? Because tradition, preference, this is what we've been brought up with. And so it distracts from being able to grow and be equipped and be discipled properly. So out of my love for you, I limit my liberty and I try to dress up at least a little bit. The final instruction in the letter is to flee from sexual immorality, okay, to flee from sexual immorality. The, the temples in Gentile places, they were filled with cult prostitution. The sexual ethic of the day was extremely loose, not too different from our day. And so the point here is, as a child of God, your sexual morality reflects the marriage of Christ and the church. That your sexual morality reflects the marriage of Christ and his church. And so for these Gentiles who are coming out of this loose culture, the church says, hey, uh, you really need to focus on this. You need to teach on this. You need to equip your people in this so that they understand that your purity before marriage and your fidelity to your spouse is extremely important because this reflects the marriage of Christ and his church. And if you neglect that, then you are perverting the gospel because you are you are causing other people to misunderstand how, how powerful this relationship ought to be. So this is a powerful testimony. This should be at the core of your teaching. This, you need to take this very, very seriously. And so this is the letter, and they send it out, and there's much rejoicing. The Gentiles, they feel so encouraged that the church in Jerusalem is now unified behind them, that they've embraced the changes of this church and that they've focused on them and they've given them instructions on what they really ought to focus on and the encouragement to keep sharing the gospel. And th this is good. 
But you know, the Judaizers, they, they didn't just go away entirely. They would pop up again from time to time. Paul would have to write the letter to the Galatians because the Judaizers showed up in Galatia. And they told the Galatians the same thing. Say, we know that Paul has been here. We know the gospel he shared with you, but he didn't share with you the whole gospel. You've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And it's really interesting. Paul, he has these formulas for how he writes a letter. There, there was a Greek letter formula of the day, and Paul, he just stayed right with that formula. But in his letter to the Galatians, he does something a little different. He abandons the long, kind of drawn-out introduction, and he just says, Hey, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Have you lost your minds? <laughs> Have you all gone mad? Do you really think that you can add anything to what Jesus has done for you on the cross? Do you really think that there is something you can do to earn your salvation? And this is the message that Paul gives to the Galatians. Now, I understand that we're proud people, right? We, we don't want to owe anybody anything. We, don't, we, we just want to be even. We don't want to be indebted to anybody. And so... From the first century church up into today, people have largely responded to the gospel the same way. We hear the good news of the gospel, that God would forgive us of all of our sin, of all our mistakes. And the thing is, we know how bad that stuff was. And we're thankful that we have this church language and we can hide all kinds of ugly just in that three-letter word, sin. Because we know what we've done. We know what we've thought. We know the choices that we've made. We, we know all that ugly. And we're glad it fits in that three-letter word. We know how sick we really are. And then we hear the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he paid the price for us. And all you have to do is accept this free gift of grace. And the response from every generation in the church or since the church age, has been, can it really be that easy? Can it really be that easy? Here's something I want you to understand. It's not that the grace of God is easy. It's not that your salvation is easy. Salvation for you and me in and of ourselves is impossible. It's not easy. You can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus died on the cross. Don't ever think that what Jesus did was easy. Carrying the cross up that hill, having his wrists and his ankles just nailed to the cross, having a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, beaten beyond recognition, spit out, mocked, insults hurled at him, a spear stuck into his side. That wasn't easy. And for you and me, it would have been impossible because if it were us on the cross, it would have simply been a guilty sinner dying for our sins. But since it was Jesus... Since it was the Son of God, he was able to take our sin, pay a price for us so that we can have a relationship with God. That is not easy. It's impossible. But you either accept that gift as free or you don't get it at all. 
You either accept it as free or you don't get it at all. Some people think that salvation can be like this airline's frequent fire uh, miles program or something. That, hey, I, I just I serve the church and I earn some points. I, I, I be nice to my neighbors and to the poor. I look after them and I get some points. I, I give, uh, you know, I put in my offering, I get some points. And after I've cured all these points, I can cash them in, you know, sometimes. And, and Jesus will owe me. He'll... he'll He'll do things for me. If you ever think that Jesus will owe you for anything you've done, you've totally missed it. You can't do anything that will ever make Jesus obligated to you. You will never be even. Never be even. It's not that it's easy. It's impossible. And you either accept Jesus as free or you don't accept him at all. And Paul reminded the Galatians that any time that you think you've done something, that will add to your salvation or help you earn salvation, you have neglected the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You either accept him as free or you don't accept him at all. And this is so critical because it informs us of the way we see people. It helps us understand and have a lens for how we view people. And the Jewish Christians, they see Gentiles eating different food. They, they they see men who are uncircumcised. They saw the perverse culture that the Gentiles lived in. And they're looking at all this, and they're having a real hard time because they think they're better. They think they're a cut above. They think that those people are inferior and that they should be left aside. They should be avoided. They should have their area, and we'll just keep our area. We'll keep things separate. This is what they're thinking. But you see, a church on the move is a welcoming church. A church on the move is a welcoming church. And by welcoming church, I don't simply mean that we have greeters at the door when people come into the building and we say hello. That's not what I mean. Remember, we are the church. A welcoming church, as we see in the book of Acts, is not just the building. It's us as people out in the community. Paul and Barnabas, and we see Peter and John Mark and Silas and countless others who will go take missionary trips to Gentile places and share the gospel. If you think back again to a Jewish perspective on Gentiles, these are the most offensive people they would ever meet. They looked at the Gentiles, they said, look at the way they live, look at their ethic. Look, look at these temples and all this false God worship, idolatry that's taken place. Look at the cult prostitution, look how ugly their lives are. Look at how wrong their choices are. These are the people that you stay away from. You don't want to have anything to do with those kind of people. Look at how they live. And then you have people taking missionary trips, getting to know their names, getting to know their stories, learning about them and their background and their families and where they've come from and where they've been, and then sharing the gospel with them sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the transformation that he has made in their lives. Now I want you, just for a moment, think about the most offensive people to you. What type of people offend you the most in our society? 
whoever offends you the most, would you take the time to get to know their names? Would you take the time to get to know their stories and their backgrounds and where they've been and what they've seen and what they've done? Because this is what the church does. This is what being a welcoming church means. We have this realization that we are all image bearers of God. And that dead is dead and lost is lost. And that before Jesus, we were all just as dead as they were. We were all just as lost as they were. And then God in his grace found us in Jesus Christ and transformed us so that we can now be a transformational church ambassadors for him. Now we get to take the time to know people's names, to hear their stories, to treat people with justice because they are image bearers of God. The believers, as they, as James wrote this letter, he, he, he wrote to the Galatians, or to the church in Antioch, and he said that Paul and Barnabas risked their lives for the sake of Jesus. This was their testimony. This is what people said of Paul and Barnabas. What would people say of you? Because let's face it, nobody comes to church because no one comes to this building because someone has judged you. You're here today because someone welcomed you. Because God and Jesus Christ welcomed you into his family. And because the body of Christ has now embraced you and says, I will love you and I will pray for you and I will encourage you and I will practice all the one another's that I'm called to. You are welcome here. You're my brother, my sister. We're family. God says that. Dr. King helped make America a place that is a little more just. Not perfect, but better. In the church, if we say we love God, then we demonstrate justice by embracing change that doesn't inflict any kind of harm on our doctrine, by limiting our liberty out of love, and by treating all people as image bearers of God, welcoming them. That's what a church on the move does. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can worship you this morning, that you have invited us in Jesus to be part of your family. So God, we, we, thank, we thank you for that privilege. We're overwhelmed by your grace. And God, we recognize that there was nothing we could ever do to earn it in any slightest way, that we were dead, we were lost, you found us, you rescued us. And so, God, this is our confession, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, God, thank you that um, because of that relationship, that we get to be your ambassadors, we get to be your church, welcoming others, telling others the good news of your son, Jesus. Help us to do that this week. We ask this through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.